Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab. My name is Goose, and today joining me on the show is Charlie Vella from Vella Media, my good friend from the Property and Business series. You would know him from all of our previous episodes. Uh, he's a much loved guest of the show and friend of. Uh, the Investor Lab. Now, what we're talking about today was really awesome. We spoke about basically how business owners can, can replace their own incomes and, and how to build a real estate property portfolio uh, as a real estate business. Okay, so, so what we specifically spoke about today was creating a real estate company, how to think about that, how to think about structuring, how to think about profit distributions, how to you know, really change the game in the way that you're approaching your real estate journey in a way that is going to give you more profits, more opportunity, more scope to grow, all by changing the way you can think about this and turning it from essentially a you know a hobby business or a or a, a solo open YouTube exercise into being a real estate business. And if you can change the way that you think about this, you're going to become a real estate entrepreneur in and of your own right, and you will be able to create a truly scalable property portfolio and achieve what you want out of life so much faster than you would ever, ever, ever imagined. We obviously, we, all, we, want, to, we want to challenge you to think a little di- bit differently and to challenge the advice that you've been getting because a lot of the advice out there is based around people who don't have the same goals as you, don't have the same dreams as you, and don't understand property in the way that you do because you're a listener of this show. So, Without any further ado, let's get stuck right into it. If, you, if you've enjoyed this episode, make sure you share it with other people. Let us know that you like it. And of course, make sure you subscribe and do all of the good stuff. But let me stop talking. Let's get right into it. I look forward to seeing you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab. Joining me today is my good friend Charlie. Charlie, how are you? It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really excited to go, Goose. Really, really. And do you want to know why? I'll tell you. Yeah, why. I'd love to know. Yeah, go on. Tell us why. Oh, I've got an offer in on a property, which of course you know, but I must admit, you wake up with a little glisten in your step. Right? It's like it's like yeah. there's uh, rose-colored glasses on throughout life at the moment. The excitement. It's Christmas Day as an adult. Yeah. And it's a scream. It's a screamer too. You guys have been on a bit of a tear lately, and um, really been been accumulating uh, some really really cool assets, which has been really really fun. So I'm excited for you. Yeah, me too. I think we should do a whole episode. I can't wait until we hit a little milestone. There's a milestone I'm very specifically after. When we hit that, I'd love to do an episode, and we'll go through the whole journey. I think yeah, really cool. I, I've actually been waiting for that too because normally there's a bit of a bookend. Normally there's like, oh, hey, we've just done this bit of a journey, and here's something that we can talk about. But you guys are just it's 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 ongoing, and it's um. So yeah, once we get to the end, we'll, we'll go back and take a little look at it. But it's really exciting at the moment. Um, just a little side note: our process as a business and what we do is continuously being refined and dialed. And I feel like we're we're. Well, I, I always feel like we're constantly dialing a little bit closer to a even sweeter sweet spot. So we're really getting down to the getting down to the the nuts of it. Yeah, we're finding some really pretty outrageous opportunities at the moment. Not just obviously the the stuff that you know about, but broadly speaking, there's some pretty wild stuff out there. And it's very interesting because and it's all because we've been able to enter into markets at the right time. Yeah, I'm super excited with not only your stuff, but how our business is going, but also the results that that clients are getting broadly. It's um, it's a really exciting time for property. It's a really exciting time for us as a business as well. So, oh, hugely so. Very, very excited by that. But today, we're talking about something that's been um, a really big challenge for me in the last month. I've had to learn a lot about this quickly. Yep. I think in the last month, you've also had to dive into this because yeah. I'm going through it, <laughs> which is understanding this whole notion of structures, trusts, 
where to put properties in what way, where they fit, what they should look at, and then what yeah. are the uh, benefits and consequences that come with that stuff. So I thought it'd be really good to go through this. And I wanted to start this episode off with a quote that I love because I think it becomes imperative when you get to this point. Once you've gone past maybe getting your first couple of properties, I think the big breakthrough I've had in recent times is uh, what got you to here won't get you to there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I always say what gets you out of Egypt won't get you to the promised land. Absolutely. And that's where the premise of this comes down. So let's let's lay it down. I think in every property, property person's uh, journey, they're going to get to a point where they probably buy maybe one or two properties in their first home. I know you've covered this in other episodes. And then they get to this stage where different things start to become important. And I'll mention a few. Uh, one is that, well, different structures for asset protection, different structures for potentially borrowing gains, and then different structures for tax effectiveness, and then different structures for legacy, like passing things down. Yeah. But this is one of those things where it's just discussed terribly. So I wanted to start this off with the idea of going, well, how do you, now that you've gotten to here and with all the experience you've accumulated and all the different people you've worked with, how do you even begin to broach this topic? Because I feel like it was it's, running into a wall at warp speed. Okay, so 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 we need, we need to kind of like cook this down a little bit, right? So what we're really talking about is we're talking about portfolio structuring, right? Specifically trusts, company structures, things like that. But this is super so this is super relevant not just to, you know, like every investor, but also to business owners, because there's a really interesting interrelationship um, that that isn't being talked about at all between business and and real estate business, right? So the way that I've been shifting this narrative to help people to think about this a little differently, because people have heard trust and there's some organizations out there that will say, get a trust for every property. Oh, it's all about asset protection. You might get sued and all this kind of stuff, which just kind of never really sat well with me. I was like, well, I mean, come on. I mean, how many times do you hear about that kind of stuff? Not very often, right? So I never really kind of floated with that. And then you've kind of got these other ambiguous um, ideas around around trust. And no, no one really kind of nuts down why you would do it, where does it fit, and how to think about it. Now, there's a, there's a couple of big reasons for that. Now, the, the, the prevailing knowledge, and also this is a knowledge that I have held or the belief that I have held for a, a fair while is that you kind of don't need to worry about trusts for the first probably you know three or four properties. After that, you might need to think about it. Now, my understanding, and I guess the advice that I had around that was because eh, it probably just isn't worth it, like the costs and stuff. It's probably just kind of not worth it. It's probably just a hassle you don't need to have. But I've realized that all of that's actually kind of like not not exactly 100% true. So it's not just about the cost. Yes, when you're setting up trust, there, there are costs associated with setting it up, operating it, and there are some other costs we can talk about in a moment, land taxes and things like that. But here is the fundamental reason that I think that there is so much poor advice around trusts. It's because... Australia, by and large, including all of the professionals and advisors and all of this kind of stuff, don't understand a you can get cash flow positive properties, and b that you can you know that your desire is actually to achieve a greater level of freedom, choice, and abundance. What I mean by that is a lot of the advice around trust is centered around negatively geared properties. And that advice is so contrarian to to or so contrary to the things that we want to try to achieve, right? So if the advice is, yeah, look, maybe don't get trust straight away, it's probably because they're thinking, well, you can't, you know, if you take losses in your trust, you're not going to be able to, uh, you know, offset the the negative gearing against your income and therefore it's probably not worth it. But what if you what if your trusts make money? What if it's profitable? And what does that then how does that then change the dynamic nature of these kind of structures? Um does that am I making sense from my waffling? 
Well, there's always a, an ambiguous way you go around to talking things that I quite enjoy, Goose. We always yeah. get there in such an awesome way, always <laughs> so well expressed. But at the same point time, I think you're on point. I think so few Australians are trying to get up to this stuff, are yeah. trying to go this way that the advice structure and what is commonly taught as normal is non-existent. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And it, it's, it's really fascinating. So how to think about it now and I guess how my thinking has changed and – uh, and we'll kind of need to talk in and around this topic a fair bit to kind of pick it all apart because there's so many facets and so many sides that we need to look at it, right? So the simple format and the easiest way to think about it that I am now encouraging people to think about it is you're not building a real estate portfolio, you're creating a real estate business, right? Now, if you're creating a real estate business or if you're creating any type of business, what do you need to do? You need to create a business entity and a business structure. You may, you know, you may set up a unit trust for a business, done that in the past. You may set up a discretionary trust. You may set up a company proprietary. There's all kinds of different stuff you need to think about. But essentially, you're going to create an operating entity that is not going to be you as an individual. Now, if you're thinking about building your real estate business as opposed to I'm an individual and I'm going to go buy a couple of houses, that's they're, they're two wildly different things. When you start thinking- Break it down. This is the hobbyist billion uh, business that goes and does, I don't know, the Sunday market once a week yeah. versus someone trying to build a, a, a substantial sized business. That's yeah, the distinction. Yeah, exactly. It's the different. Yeah, exactly. It's the difference between being a sole trader or or having a hobby business or or something like that, and then creating actually a real a real company. That's the difference. Right? That's what we're talking about. Now, any real business is going to want to a operate profitably and b have good have um, good structures around the distribution of those profits and the management of that money good optics, all of that kind of stuff. So the way that I'm encouraging people to think about it now is, okay, how are we going to structure this business in a way that is going to give you the greatest continuity and stop you you know, hitting roadblocks in the future? So just in the same way that if you set your business up incorrectly, it can cause you some major issues in, in the future, which I have had that experience because I went to... Uh, years ago, I started a business and got very bad advice on the um, structuring of that business. Um, and it wasn't set up correctly. And as a result, about seven years later, we found ourselves with a huge amount of uh, exposed liabilities, like significant issues that we have had a very uh, hard time unpacking all because we didn't set it up properly in the first way, first place. So now the way to think about it is like, okay, if I'm going to go and create this business, what is that business going to look like in the future? Just like any other business, right? How so, common is that story though? Like I know people this has happened to. It's like they get to retirement age. They've had a business their whole life, but they yeah. never got advice. And then now when they sell the business, they're taxed at 55% instead of 30% on a massive sale. Yeah. And like what a difference that makes at the end game. To- well, totally. It's like there's 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 um, the tax liabilities on capital gains. There's, um, there's tax liabilities in terms of, um, you know, ATO liabilities, all kinds of different stuff and ways that you can be overexposed and, and lack protection if you don't set your business up in the right way. Now, I'm always really careful when we talk about asset protection because I think for a lot of people out there, it's a little bit, it's being, it's a bit scaremongery. Definitely. That is the, the, you absolutely hit the experience I have had in the recent weeks talking to advisors of a, yeah. it's an insurance salesman. They're selling yeah. you absolute insurance quality things here. Yeah, totally. And it's this it's this idea that, oh, you better make sure that you've got all your um all your structures set up or someone might come and get you. You know, and it's I don't I don't prescribe to that. I don't that's not how I live my life, etc. But you do need to be but you do you do need to have uh, some degree of caution, right? So where is where is the balance, you know? Um I think 
for business owners particularly, it's a good idea to isolate your businesses from each other. So for example, Charlie, you run a media company. It's a good idea for your property portfolio and your media company to not be exposed to the risks of each other. It's a good idea, right? So asset protection in that sense. Great. Let's silo our asset types but you don't need to then go and you wouldn't then create a separate business entity. Well, maybe you do. I don't know. But I'm assuming you don't create a separate business entity for every single podcast you produce to isolate every one of those from being a potential risk to the bigger business. Yes, you know, that's shell companies. There's something about the Cayman Islands, uh, yeah. double Irish. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. yeah, totally. And so th- this this whole idea around I'm gonna, you know, you've got to have a trust for every asset. It's just it's just madness in my mind. Now the way I like to think about this um, from a from a from an asset protection perspective is like by like, right? To a certain degree. So if you have a buy and hold strategy, then and you're buying assets that you're going to hold for the long term, and they're going to create a portfolio mix within a trust or company structure, then you can hold all of those assets together. As long as the risk profile of the assets is relatively similar or is offset by the risk profile of the other assets in the portfolio. And I'll come back to that because that's an interesting uh, idea around how to offset risks using different types of properties. So I'll come back to that. But if, for example, you've got a buy and hold strategy where you're buying some residential properties and stuff like that, and you're putting all of those in a trust versus, hey, I want to go and do a development, which would intrinsically be a higher risk, more moving parts, potentially you're going to take on some JV partners, different uh, funding strategies, all of this other kind of stuff. It would make sense for you to isolate that as a different business, just in the same way that I have a real estate business. If I decided that I wanted to go and start a, um, a landscaping company or, a, or a, a heavy equipment hire company, I would create a different business. I wouldn't just have uh, dash dot excavator rentals as part of the same company. I would create that as a separate entity because it's a different type of operating structure. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, I love, I love the way we're thinking about this from intention, right? I wish this is how I was thinking about it about a month ago because this yeah. was quite a confusing idea. Is like, you know, if my intention long term is to create a, a business, right? Not just buy one property to hold forever, and that's my strategy. It's not a hobby. I'm going to add after this in a big way. It's like yeah. one structure per business. You know, if I have a business, that's one structure. The media company, in my example, yeah. dash dot for you. Then if I'm buy and holding, well, that's a type of business. That's my buy and hold business. And then if I'm developing, well, then that's a development business. So that would be three things. They differ by what the organization does or the entity does, how you want to view it. Yeah. So that's, I think that's a, a very interesting way to do it and definitely more of the approach I'm taking with my own stuff as well. Yeah, totally. I definitely want to talk about how businesses can distribute profits into from one business into another because I think that's a really interesting conversation. I think you will have really good insight into that as well. Um as opposed to paying out to, to PAYG. But one thing I want to touch on though is within that buy and hold strategy, because it's very easy to overcomplicate um, when do you define a different business one from one business from another? Is it okay, I'm gonna have one one uh, real estate business for commercial and I'm gonna have one for um, uh, residential properties under four hundred thousand dollars and I'm gonna have one for um, unit blocks and apartments or, you know, like where do you kind of, how do, how do you differentiate that? And when do you start to, you know, sub- segment and niche down those businesses? The most interesting thing about creating um, 
trust structures, and I kind of covered this. There's an awesome episode that just came out recently with with Stephen McClatchy um, talking about the kind of funding strategies around this kind of stuff. The most interesting thing about creating a real estate business is firstly, you want it to be profitable. You want it to produce more income than users because like any like any business, you want it to be making <laughs> so, money, right? I just have to pause here, right? It's, it's only in Silicon Valley and property that people think, well, losing money in this is a great idea. <laughs> I know. It's wild, isn't it, right? It's just completely, it's just completely bonkers, right? Um, so you want your business, your real estate business, to create profit. You want it to be profitable. You want it mind blown, Goose. Yeah. Mind blown. <laughs> I know, right? Yes, you want the equity to increase. A lot of people make this mistake when they think uh, that there's only cash flow and growth. And I don't just mean in real estate. I mean in business too. Like a lot of a lot of people think that, well, I can have a growth business, which means that I must be you know, lose money and just take on millions and millions and millions of investment to be able to fund it. But it's a growth business and growth businesses don't make profit versus I have a cash flow business, which essentially doesn't generate any equity and has no no intrinsic asset value. It's the same thinking that goes into real estate where it's like, well, I guess if I want to get growth, I got to have 1% yield. And if I want cash flow, I'll go buy in some tiny little country town. This thinking doesn't make sense. You can have both, right? And so the way to think about that in the same way as you know, we're a we're a service business, which for you know, but by by and large would be seen as a, a more of a cash flow business than an equity business as opposed to a SaaS. Um, but we're building equity in our business, right? Same thing goes within your real estate company. You want to be building both cash flow and equity. You want the asset to grow in value, but it needs to be able to wash its own face, self-service its own needs and all of that kind of stuff. So then the emphasis really, really, really does become about cash flow. Now, not at the expense of growth, but you really need to make sure you have cash flow. The reason being is you're going to have higher operating expenses. You're going to have things like you know, trust accounting. You're going to have things like land tax implications, et cetera, in the future. Now, the cool quit, thing- quit is- Pause right there, just to give some context around this. In my research, uh, trust creation is normal. What I found in Australia between two and five thousand dollars, depending on the complexity, yeah. and maintenance of a trust is between one and two thousand. So, just to set some context for people, I know that's going to be a question they have of like, well, what comes up with a yeah. trust from there? So, that's general premises of extra costs in doing this per trust. Yeah, totally. And the other, yeah, so that and that's a good. That's a good point to to lay out. So if you're creating a trust per property, and so you're going to be looking at, you know, a couple of thousand dollars of operating expenses a year additionally, if your property is only producing two thousand dollars of net cash flow and it's costing two thousand dollars just to have it in a trust, then you're you're basically at a neutral cash flow position, which you know you could argue probably doesn't necessarily make as much sense as you might want it to make, right? It's not a bad thing, better than losing money, but it's not ideal. Now if, for example, though, you had one trust and 10 properties in it, and each of those properties was producing $2,000 of net cash flow, and it cost you $2,000 of operating expenses to operate the trust, then you're going to have $18,000 of profit. Simple way of thinking about it. Now, there are some considerations with trusts, land tax and stuff like that. There's probably a whole... We could go down that rabbit hole in a long way. But the re- just the thing to think about is that there are going to be some costs of doing business depending on how how many assets you have in which states and what's the mix of those assets and the values and all of this kind of stuff. So there's other things to think about. The point though is that in order for none of those costs to matter, you just need to make more profit. It's that simple. So for example, if your, if your real estate portfolio is generating $100,000 of net profit, net cash flow, 
every year and your operating expenses of that prop, uh, property, or well, let's say it's sorry, gross profit each year and your operating expenses of that portfolio are, let's just say $2,000 in, in trust accounting and $10,000 in land tax, and that's going to be $12,000 of, of operating expenses, then your net profit is going to be $88,000. Okay. That's the way to be thinking about it rather than, oh my God, there's a few more expenses. Oh my God, oh my God. We actually just need to shift our thinking about going, okay, well, how do we increase our net margins? How do we increase our profitability? See, I will ask you this question. I've thought about this a lot in the last week. Do you think that the real estate industry has an obsession with keeping costs low because there is such low cash flow within yep. the portfolios? Yeah. Yes. I love how quickly you responded to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's madness, right? Because like the whole... It's like avoiding land tax over getting a good asset. It's like if this is a great asset, even if you have to pay some land tax, it is probably unlikely the greater move long term or even yeah. in the short term. But it's like, whoa, land tax. Whoa. Yeah, whoa. It's, like the, it's, like, it's like the classic uh, thinking paradigm. Like, hey, is a is million dollars debt uh, expensive or not? Well, it depends. If that million dollars debt is making a million dollars profit on top, then hey, give me a million dollars debt versus a million dollars debt where I'm not making any income. Oh my God, hang me. You know, like it, and this is the way to this is the way to think about it. So, so then we start. Then when, once we start to shift our paradigm to like, oh, hang on a second, okay. So the key is, I just actually need to have a more profitable property portfolio. So I just need to increase my net margins. Is that is that what you're saying? Yes, it's exactly what I'm freaking saying, right? Because if you can increase your net margins, all of the hurdles that everybody else faces in their property portfolio, they start to disappear. They start to just completely disappear. Like if, for example, you had you had a business which was making tons of profit, and then all of a sudden the government put in a new levy and said, oh, "Hey, that business is now going to cost an extra ten thousand dollars to run," and all of the other um, businesses that were in that space couldn't afford the additional ten thousand dollars, and they all collapsed, but you were making a hundred thousand dollars of profit, and you could just climb over the hurdle and keep going, then you're going to be able to mop up all the success. So you start to expand your potential massively when you shift from how do I minimize expenses uh, and shift that towards how do I maximize profit, okay? And then that starts to change the game around portfolio mix, asset types, um, you know, net return ratios, uh, return on capital percentages, all of these kind of things start to really transform the way that you think about how to structure an effective portfolio for maximum success and maximum continuity. It's pretty easy. The reason most people get stuck is because they don't create enough profitability in their portfolio. Very, That's super simple, right? The reason that people reach their serviceability caps is because they don't create enough profitability in their portfolio. The reason people never achieve you know, the, what they want to achieve in property, the reason they get stuck, the reason they don't get past five properties or two properties or anything like that is because they don't have enough profitability in their portfolio. So if you expand on that idea, and because some people might be going, oh, well, what's profitable? You know, is it $10,000 a year? Maybe. Sure. But if you expanded on that idea and said, well, I've got a million dollars of equity in my real estate portfolio, but it's producing let's just say $500,000 of net cash flow. Well, what's that then going to do? What does that entity look like? So if you had a business separately, just forget about it being real estate. If you had a business that was producing half a million dollars of net profit and had equity on the balance sheet of a million dollars, do you think that you would be able to use that asset, that business to go and borrow money, to go and buy more assets, maybe buy another office, things like that? Yeah, of course you would because standalone that business is going to be a profitable, valuable entity. So the more you can think about how do I create a profitable and successful real estate business, the further you're going to be able to go. 
I will say I think a lot of the advice to go deeper than this is like one, there is clearly an obsession with keeping costs low because yep. yields are weak or their profitability of their business is weak, which is just along the lines of, okay, don't hire anyone. Let's make sure we use all the cheapest tools possible in my business to make sure that we get far and keep profit high, which I just think is a bad attitude in general. Yeah. But then second to that is that when you talk to these advisors or anyone else, most of them are only operating from the paradigm. Well, this might person might get to three. Three properties is maybe their ambition or goal. So a lot of this stuff just doesn't become relevant in that conversation. So they become conditioned to think this is the way. They yep. really do. It's not structured around people who want to go, let's say, five plus, five plus properties or a bigger substantial way. And I love the entity thinking. And it's like, if you are approaching your portfolio from like, how do I make this a profitable business? The thinking swaps completely. The ideas yeah, totally. swap completely. Yeah, massively, right. it massively shifts. And it also changes the way you can think about the types of properties in a portfolio mix. So let's, and go, this, let's go there. I think this is an interesting conversation. I think um, let's let's say that you're going, you're someone who's going to get you, sweet, I'm going to get a, a trust set up. I'm going to start building my profit, uh, my property business. Yep. Sorry. And I'm going to start putting this together. How does asset mix? Do I just go, all right, all my growth assets are going in one trust or my cash flow in another developments no. over here? How do you mix it up? Well, let's just be clear. So let, let's actually take a little step back and let's think about um, let's just think about a, a couple of things. So, firstly, if you've got a discretionary trust, you can distribute profits or you can distribute um, you know dividends and stuff between different entities. Right? That's the benefit of having a discretionary trust. Let's just uh, articulate that because I had to learn this one. If you and me had a discretionary trust, we can discretion where the profits goes. We yeah. can say, sweet, 100% to Goose this time, 100% to Charlie next time, or 50-50 each or 70-30. We, we discretionally can move that at our whim. Yeah, which is awesome, right? And that allows you to control the flow and direction of your profits in a way that is going to be most advantageous to you at any given point in time. Yeah. Pretty simple. And then as comparison, just for the people at home, a unit trust is defined. So if we say, Goose, it's 50-50, Right, you cannot change that. That's yeah. the units of the trust set up. So you totally. own fifty units, I own fifty units. Exactly. So if we had if we had a business together and we made a hundred thousand dollars profit and it's set up as a unit trust and I owned half the units and you had owned half the units and we made a hundred grand profit, I'd get fifty grand, you'd get fifty grand. Uh, if we had a, a business that made a hundred thousand dollars in profit and we decided that we were going to focus on uh, your building your property portfolio one year and mine the next, then you might take 75% of the profits that year and I might take 25% just going on a holiday or something like that. Can, and can so, we just use an example of where this is relevant? Let's pretend, yeah. right, we have a discretionary trust and I sold my media company. I've got a big year of like income coming in and capital gains to deal with. It might be a really good option not to take from my discretionary trust at this time because there's so much income coming from another area that it might be beneficial for things to go a different way. Now, of course, speak to your tax advisor, but there are circumstances where you would want to change where money goes in your life or who it goes to. Uh, 100%. A really classic example is for business owners who actually have a business, right? Rather than um, you paying yourself uh, more money, let's say I'm a business owner, and, which I am, and I want to grow a property portfolio, which I do. There's a couple of different ways to think about it. Do I, um, do I need to increase my salary in order so that I can have more personal money to go and uh, build a property portfolio? Does that mean I need to increase my wages and pay more super and pay more marginal uh, income tax rate? Uh, is that the way to think about it? Maybe you could do that if you need to increase your personal serviceability. It's one way of thinking about it. Should I pay myself a dividend so that I don't have to pay superannuation, uh, but 
that will increase my uh, my income and therefore affect my marginal tax rate as well. Hmm, slightly better. What about if I had enough uh, income and my income was satisfactory to support my lifestyle and my borrowing capacity? But what about if my business could pay a, a profit percentage to my real estate business and pay company tax rates as opposed to personal income marginal tax rates? Would that be a more efficient way to think about distributing profits? If you're a business owner and that doesn't make sense to you, you need a better accountant. Yep. It's 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 pretty wild if you can think about it like that. And here's the thing, even if you're not currently a business owner, if you can start thinking about things like this, you're going to find ways to be able to make this work for you. This isn't some secret cabal only for people who have started a, a business and all this kind of stuff. Be, like This is all about mindset. You need to be able to retrain the way that you're thinking about the flow of your revenue in your personal life and in your in your in the business of you in order to make this work in a more meaningful way, right? It's, it's there's some interesting stuff there. So if your business can then pay a uh, percentage of the profits straight to your real estate company, you can then start to divest funds from one entity into another entity. There's one thing to think about. Now, now that you've got money flowing into a uh, your real estate business, which would theoretically be set up as a discretionary trust so that you can control the outflow or the profitability distribution distribution of profits from that trust in a way that is meaningful to you and your family or other beneficiaries of that trust, then the way to think about it is, okay, well, how would I? How do I need to think about portfolio mix in terms of types of assets? Now, there are a couple of ways you could think about it. You could have... I just uh, have to laugh. We started this idea five minutes ago, went a completely different way and have found our way back to portfolio mix. So you get on these episodes, spot on. <laughs> totally. I knew I was going to get there, right? So so there's, one, there's a couple of ways you could think about this. Now, I, maybe there's no perfect way. So let's talk about a couple of ways. You could have one trust, which is like the, the Goose McGrath cash flow property trust. And it's all about cash flow. The just so just it's just only cash flow properties. And then you could have separately, you could have the Goose McGrath um, growth trust, and you could have properties which are only about growth. Now, where you're going to find a little, find it a little bit tricky is how do you fund those different? Um, how do you fund those companies? You know, if one is producing more profit than the other, but you could, at your discretion, distribute cash flow profits from the cash flow trust to the growth trust. That could into interlink those two trusts and therefore create funding potential. It's one way of thinking about it. Does that kind of make sense? Is that too ambiguous? I think that what you've mentioned is certainly an idea, but it's definitely an advanced strategy. I think your accountant and advisors would want to be absolutely on point in how yeah. to do that because there are some complexities to what you just described. Totally. And I don't actually think it's the best way of doing it. Like you could do it that way, theoretically. Way better way to do it though would be to go, okay, how do I maximize growth and cash flow within one company? How do I create one really high performance company? So the way to think about that, and particularly within the context of uh, increasing profitability, is yeah, you do need to have growth assets in there. Now, typically, uh, re- residential, re- uh, well-purchased, well-placed re- residential real estate assets are going to grow much uh, faster than, say, commercial. But here's a little thing. You could theoretically stick a commercial property for purely for the function of cash flow into your real estate business for the function of liquidating the capital within that uh, entity. So let's say you go and buy three or four or five um, property uh, residential real estate uh, assets, which are all cash flow positive and self-supporting and all of that kind of stuff, and it's all good, and you're creating some profit there. You could actually supercharge that by whacking in something that is singularly there 
for a cash flow function. Now, the, hit, the thing with commercial real estate is that it is inherently riskier because what you're essentially betting on is you're betting on industry stability. And all you need to do is look at things like the retail sector and, and everything recently to understand that whole industries can be disrupted pretty quickly. And there's a, an inherent risk when what you're hedging against is industry stability, etc. But if you're a business owner, there's no reason that you couldn't buy your own uh, commercial um, space, office, or whatever the case may be, in your own trust, and then use that to fund the rest of your uh, real estate port and get the business to rent it back off your trust to create that stability of income in there. And then you can increase the cash flow within your portfolio and you are in control then. So for example- I, I that- love this one. I love this one because this is the hidden advantage that business owners have they may not be aware of. It's wild, right? So let's just say, let's just say, for example, I've got a business and I want to go and rent an office space uh, for my team. And let's just say that that rent is $100,000 a year, which isn't, which wouldn't be wild, right? So I could go rent a, uh, an office space for $100,000 a year and I could pay somebody else rent. All right, cool. I could do that. Or if I had built enough assets up in my real estate business and I had enough equity available, I could go and use the equity within my real estate business to go and fund the deposit for buying an office, right? Now I could then my business could still pay my 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 real my uh, my my personal business my services company could still rent that office space but rather than renting it to some other landlord I could rent it off my real estate business and that hundred thousand dollars of revenue rather than disappearing off into the ether is still a real cost to my services business but is getting paid to my real estate business and then all of a sudden I have a hundred thousand dollars more revenue getting pumped into my real estate business which is then going to supercharge the ability for that entity to be able to leverage its own equity, buy more properties and really start to accelerate. It creates a crazy flywheel effect. Now, where I was thinking about portfolio mix though is you want to be able to manage that risk. So if you're a business owner, maybe you do have the ability to go and buy your own office space and do do that kind of really cool hidden advantage. If if you're not a business owner and you don't have that opportunity, you might think about, okay, should I buy a small commercial asset and how would I manage that risk? So you want to be able to offset that risk with the other assets in your portfolio. One commercial property by itself, let's just say that's got a risk factor of 10. One, uh, re- one commercial property in a, uh, in a portfolio that has five other residential really stable assets, that portfolio or that real estate business might have an, uh, an adjusted risk factor of five. You know what I mean? So you can kind of manage risk by having more stable assets surrounding it. It's such an interesting idea. It really, it, this has probably been the most shaping um, discussions I've had in the last few weeks is about these trust structures. Um, one of the conversations I had, and I want to uh, add into this, is the whole idea is that you're basically talking about, as an example here, you might put one cash flow, one growth, one commercial uh, asset in a trust. You might put three, and then the risk each of them inherently has is mitigated by the benefit of the other. So your yes. cash flow asset might have no growth, but you've got a growth asset in there to provide the growth. Yes. And then you've also got a commercial asset for some reason that doesn't fit into that mix of those two in this example. <laughs> but it's it's balancing it out. You might have higher cash flow, but it's a riskier cash flow in that um, commercial asset. So again, you're balancing it out in these other areas to create a safer asset or a location diverse asset. So the trust becomes a much more mixed thing, which I think is so, so interesting in there. So interesting. And especially when you think you could tenant your own commercial asset, it throws the mix into such a different view. 
And this is why this is so warping, right? How different is this conversation we're having now and the way we're thinking about trust than I know for myself when I started out in property, it's like this wasn't the thinking at all. This no. isn't even the stuff I was considering. Yeah, it's um, it's the more that you think about real estate like a business, the the more it changes the way that you the the way that you will approach real estate. You know, so even yeah, the, as we said, the types of assets you're going to select and why you're going to select them, and the diversity of the location, and as you say, within within your real estate business, you will want to then. There's so many different ways you can diversify. Diversify by asset type. Diversify by um, outcome that you're after, whether it be growth or cash flow, multi occupancy, so you've got better rental stability, um, you know, all of these kind of things. Um, location, how are you offsetting costs? You might find that right now the best properties and the best opportunities are all in Queensland, but then you might go, well, how do we? How do we offset the fact that that's now going to create more um, land tax because we're going to have more assets in? one state for example whereas some states are going to have land tax from from the first property you buy and then so you've really got to think about all these kind of things but again leaning back to what i said earlier all of that stops mattering if you create enough profit in your portfolio like none of it actually matters oh okay so oh my god i got a land tax bill of a hundred thousand dollars does that even matter if your portfolio is producing five hundred thousand dollars profit i'm not I think you think about it differently if you're in that position. I think if you're on a squeeze and you get a big bill, for, like if let's pretend you're someone out there and you've got a thousand dollars in your bank account and you get a bill for two thousand dollars, like I can see why that would cause duress, stress, yeah. make you uncomfortable. If you got a million dollars in your bank account, you get a thousand dollars, like oh, no biggie, you roll on. Okay, yeah, cool. Let's move on. And so the emphasis really needs to be about uh, on profitability, and it's and it's fascinating because there are people out there who have. And, um, you know, this one guy in particular that, that I know of who's got 240 properties. Uh, and I was actually on a, um, uh, a webinar in a mastermind uh, group talking about, you know, basically how to think about your real estate portfolio as a real estate business. And somebody mentioned uh, this guy has got 240 properties. Now, I, I happen to know that a lot of those properties are extremely low value assets, um, which is totally fine. And there's no critique. And Hey, look, fair play to him. He's got 240 properties for crying out loud. That's pretty awesome. 240 properties, even at 100 grand, is still very well done. It's extremely well done, right? So I'm not critiquing his ability to get to that number. That's that's all good. But the question you've got to ask yourself, though, is is it better to have 240 properties or is it better to have 10 really well thought out uh, or well positioned or highly profitable or you know really good value and better performing assets? Now, intrinsically, you're going to have lower costs and better. You know, like you won't have as much diversity, of course. You know, if you if you could own if you could own a thousand apartments versus only one apartment, for example, you're better off owning a thousand because you're going to have a better rental stability. But there's a there's an element where you need to think about um, what that asset, where that asset's going to fit within the the total vision of what your real estate business is going to do for you, uh, as opposed to just getting caught up with things like numbers and and stuff like that. Because it's very easy to 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 chase, for example, yields. It's very easy to go. All right, well, all right, I guess if I just need more profit, I just need higher yields. I'm going to just get anything that you know. You just find you, the where wherever you can get the highest yields. You might end up buying a. You might end up buying a, you know, uh, a, a studio apartment in uh, Mount Isa, which might have a seventeen percent yield. But I don't know. Like, what's the rental stability like? What's the how how long is that going to be vacant vacant for? And 
is that really going to be a healthy addition to your portfolio? I heard this really interesting story recently of somebody who bought a uh, a bed sit. So basically a studio apartment. In fact, what it was is actually a, a hotel room that had been um, strata subdivided from the hotel and was being sold as an individual uh, room. So it was being sold as a bed sit. Uh, purchase price, $8,500. Rent, $250 a week. <laughs> <laughs> the guy just bought it. The guy bought it on his credit card. He said, "Yeah, okay, bought it on his credit card." <laughs> That's a great story. Yeah, which is awesome. And like, hey, put it in that position for eight and a half grand. I might buy that too. But just how am I risk that? I think I'm okay with that risk appetite. <laughs> I'm okay with that risk appetite as well. And I was like, well. Yeah, I'd probably do the same. I'd probably just like pay the eight and a half grand and get that because that's that's pretty cool. But the thing is, is that really the structure on which you want to base your whole portfolio? And it's the same as selling, you know, low price products versus high price services. And you've got to look at what those margins look like over the long term and also what the operating complexity is of your portfolio and how you want to manage that. Completely. Completely agree on that. I want to ask you something different here, still related around this topic, because I've been having many conversations around this recently. Um, at many points in, I'm sure, your life and mine, new mm. information comes to light and we look back and we go, I won't say well, the F word, but I should. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So, for example, in this context here, someone's listening to this podcast, they've maybe already got a few properties and they're sitting there and go, I have completely ignored trusts and structures. I can see that maybe this is something that I should be paying more attention to and I want to go seek professional advice and look at it. How do you weigh up the ideas of, okay, I've bought a property, it's not in a trust, it's in a personal name, hint, hint, I've done this. Um, and then I look at it and go, how do I evaluate or think about moving assets and the expenses that go with that over the long game? Like, and I'll put some caveats in. For some people, they may not, if, if you're moving the asset, there are costs that will be triggered, like stamp duty. But- is it worth considering it when you look at the long game and thinking bigger for your business in general, your property business here? It's a good question and it's not one with an easy, easy answer, right? So if you look at really black and white, most people can't. Like the opportunity cost, let's say you've got four properties outside of a trust and then you go, oh my, and they're all worth $500,000. So you've got $2 million worth of property and you want, you're like, oh my God, now I want to transfer those into a, into a trust. And I'm going to trigger stamp duty and potentially capital gains and all this other kind of stuff. It's a lot of it's a lot of money to consider. You know, about the, 20, 20 to twenty five a pop. Yeah, totally. So then the question is, could you put that money to better use in building a building continuing to build your property portfolio? Potentially, um, that's another deposit if you were going to do all four. That's a hundred thousand dollars there. It's potentially your next purchase. Yeah, exactly. And then that next purchase, you could purchase it in the trust, and you could. You know, make sure that it's a really highly profitable purchase and all of that kind of stuff. And you can kind of just draw a line in the sand and move forward. Now, this, what I'm about to say is, um, I, I don't, I'm not saying this with a, enough authority that I'm like, hey, you can definitely do this. But just, just as a caveat, if anyone's taking this po podcast as financial advice, you've got bigger problems in life. <laughs> so <laughs> the, there's, there's, there's an argument to be had. And I don't, again, I don't know the, the legal, and complexities and ramifications of this. But capital gains is triggered based on the profitability of your purchase versus your sell price. So for example, if you bought a property for $200,000 and then it, you know, it was now worth $500,000, then you would have a $300,000 capital gain and that's what you would be taxed on. However, and, and, and also stamp duty is based on the purchase price. So theoretically, if you were to sell those assets at a loss, you would not 
pay any capital gains tax. And also, based on the purchase price, you would not pay the same stamp duty as you would if you were selling a property for, say, $500,000. So, theoretically, you may be able to sell the assets from yourself to a business, i.e. your real estate business, at, uh, at a loss and manage some of those costs. Now, obviously, it's pretty gray, um, but that's a it's way to very gray. I'm sitting here in my, um, my there's, there's definitely things and hurdles and I would say, without doubt, the government has put things in place to stop people doing this. Totally, but there's but there's but there but there's but there's degrees to which you can manage that. So I'm not saying, hey, go and sell a property for a dollar into your trust, and now uh, bazinga, you're off. I, like, you wouldn't be able to do that. I, I would say that that would be you know, you know be a bridge too far. But there's got to be some ways to manage that. Um, you know, there's got to be ways to be able to manage that and potentially mitigate some of the costs. And that's something you'd obviously need to get independent advice on. But that's one way to think about it, you know. Um, more, more specifically, though, you know, I would suggest just drawing a line in the sand and moving on. Um, as long as you can continue to support that as a, as a strategy. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. Certainly one uh, worth speaking to your advisors about and accountants and tax lawyers and all the rest. Well, one more thing I just want to broach quickly before we uh, round this one up is land, land tax. Yeah, I think land tax is a bit of a taboo topic in real estate. It's like this secret. I mean, I mean, I'm scared of it. I didn't really look into it till this week. I'm like, oh, I got to avoid land tax, and I'm like, well, how much is land tax? Yeah. So what I wanted to do is just broach the idea that of how land tax works, and then some of the differences just quickly here. And I'll get, we'll use a uh, the one I'm mostly interested in right now or thinking about is that the way land tax works is that it only gets triggered once you cross the threshold, and you only yes. pay the land tax on the amount above the threshold. It doesn't trigger on the whole amount. So for example, I'll use Queensland because I know this one. If you have a property and the land is worth $600,000 or less, no land tax in your personal name. If it's in a trust, it's $350,000, anything above that. For land value, that is not building value, that is land value, it's Mm. land tax. Once you cross over that, if you're over that by $10, you would pay one cent per dollar you're over. Yeah. Like it's not a huge amount. No. If you're only a little bit over in certain ways, right? It's not necessarily something to hit the panic button about. Yeah, we treat it that way. Totally. And I think that this is um this is again the the scare tactics, right? So no no one wants more expenses than they need, right? So it's as ever, like with any tax or without with any expense, it is important to be efficient and it's important to approach it intelligently. So, for example, you don't want to go and pay more um, personal tax than you need to. But at the same time, you shouldn't go and incur additional expenses purely for the goal of reducing your tax or redu- reducing your income, right? That would just be that would just be madness, right? So that's good, the broken broken way of thinking about it. So in the same sense, yeah, you want to be land tax efficient. Okay, you, you want to be mindful that the more assets you accumulate in different locations and based on their different requirements. So, for example, in Victoria, it's anything in a trust or a company, it's anything above twenty five thousand dollars in land value. So, basically, from zero dollars, <laughs> uh, basically everything. You want to be mindful of what that's going to mean in terms of additional expenses, but you don't want to let that hold you back, right? So in New South Wales, it's basically from it's from day one, right? So if you've got a trust, you're paying land tax from 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 
the first dollar of land value. Does that mean that you should never buy in New South Wales? Uh, no, it doesn't. It just means you need to think about what the impact of that is on your portfolio. So, for example, in uh, in in yeah, in Queensland or in, in Victoria, for example, above the twenty five thousand dollars of land value, um, it's zero point three seven five percent of the of the land value, right? So it's 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 a pretty small. It's a pretty small amount. So you just need to factor that into the cost. But it is something you need to be smart about. Um, I certainly don't think it's something to be scared of because what you actually need to consider is, is this the best place to invest? Now, in the grand scheme of things, all of these expenses are, should be helping you to, to achieve a greater wealth goal, not detracting from it. So if it's the difference between you making a million dollars or making zero dollars, just go and pay the land tax and deal with the expenses. You know, and, and this is the kind of way to think about it. The other thing to think about with when you've got a trust set up is a lot more stuff becomes a lot more tax deductible as well. So it swings and roundabouts. You know, whereas, for example, something like a, a buyer's agency service or a, or, a, or a strategic advisor and acquisition management service or any of these other kind of things, as an individual, you may, you, they may be seen as an expense. As a company, they would be... Uh, sorry, as, as a personal expense, you might not be able to claim as, a, as an individual. As a company, that becomes one of your operating expenses. Okay, well, you needed to get some consultants for your company and all of that kind of stuff. And so it changes the game in terms of what you can claim against what. So there's swings and roundabouts. So I don't think it should be something that we should be scared of or uh, or shy away from because it's not huge. We just need to know about it so that we can manage that risk. But again, leaning back to where we said at the start, do we think a lot of the bad advice comes from people who don't understand that you can buy properties that are profitable, that don't understand all this kind of stuff? Yeah, because I mean, if, you're, if your portfolio is already losing... I don't know, ten thousand dollars a year or thirty thousand dollars a year because it's negatively geared, and and then on top of that, you're adding I don't know another ten thousand dollars of of land tax in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, that's pretty hairy. But if your portfolio is producing more profit than the tax costs, then it's less concerning. Totally, <laughs> way, less way less concerning. All right, guys. Well, let's wrap this one up from here. This has been a whole bunch of fun, and of course, I'll finish this one off by saying we are not finance tax <laughs> professionals. If you are going through this, please make sure to talk to qualified, well-represented people. But I will say this, verify. The ideas we're talking about, they should understand and be able to say, that's complete rubbish, or actually there's some merit to that. So make sure you are getting independent advice. Make sure you're speaking to several people. It's helped myself a lot, and I'm sure Goose. Anything else you want to add in? No, I think that's awesome. No, I, th- I think it's great. I think the more that we can have these kinds of discussions, um, the better off we'll all be. I think I think the, the real estate space is too populated with outdated ideas around all of this kind of stuff. And no one is actually trying to push the envelope and go, well, actually, let's all just think about this a little differently and what let's achieve way, way more. And I think if you can start to crack the code of some of these ways of thinking differently, you're going to be able to accelerate much further and much faster than the average investor and ultimately achieve what you want in life so much faster. So on that note, uh, if you've enjoyed the episode, make sure you share this with somebody else. Make sure you let us know and um, give us some feedback. We love the feedback and we look forward to seeing you on the next episode. 